Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. For more information on History Hub and to download our other podcasts, go to www.historyhub.ie. In this episode, the second of a two-part series in the Battle of Clontarf, a documentary entitled Commemorating Clontarf, 1014 Through the Ages. In 1014, a famous battle was fought on the outskirts of Dublin. The Battle of Clontarf is an almost mythical event, popularly portrayed as a victory for the unified native Irish under Brian Boru over the pagan Viking invaders. 1,000 years on, the romanticised version of the story remains popular. Brian Boru, the victorious though martyred king, has come to be regarded as the first national hero a sort of prototype leader for Irish nationalism. When looking at modern nationalism in the 19th and 20th centuries, all nations that have grown out in that period and emerged as sovereign states need some form of foundation narrative that they can articulate their own birth and their own coming into being. Dr Conor Mulva of the University College Dublin School of History and Archives. Many nations use their own independent struggle as their foundation narrative. So just as America has 1776, France has its 1789 and the memory of the Bastille. In the 19th and 20th centuries, many nations and many nationalists look back to the medieval past for examples that could be used to form a national glue and to bolster and motivate the contemporary nation. Serbs and Balkan nationalists look back to the memory of the Battle of Kosovo Field in 1389 as one of their key foundation narratives. Just as the Serbs have their 1389, Ireland has its 1014, and Clontarf is a particularly powerful symbol in Irish memory and myth-making. What we see in the memory of Clontarf is the reworking of a story, the introduction of new parts into that story which turn it into a moral tale and a tale that has even more contemporary significance than the historical fact itself. In 1843, Daniel O'Connell used Clontarf to mobilise the Irish public to assert their own rights. Similarly, in 1914, Clontarf was used by the emergent Irish volunteer movement as an example and as a precedent for their own movement. By tracing the memory of the Battle of Clontarf through Ireland's long 19th century, it's possible to explore the power of historical memory to politicians and revolutionaries seeking to mobilise their followers into action. No single battle in Irish history looms as large as the Battle of Clontarf. The name of Brian Boru is more widely known than the name of perhaps any other Irish king. But what actually happened in 1014? And what was the contemporary significance of the Battle of Clontarf? The Battle of Clontarf was certainly seen as a very important battle by contemporaries. Uh, very many people were killed there, uh, some of them being the most important people in the island, including, of course, Brian Bru, the King of Ireland, but also his main opponent, uh, Moyle Morda, uh, the King of Leinster, also dies at the battle. Dr Elva Johnston of the University College Dublin School of History and Archives. So it was seen as a very important, very bloody battle, a major struggle. However, as a struggle, it would have been viewed as an internal struggle uh, between different 
different power bases within Ireland. Uh, and if we look at the, the background to the Battle of Clontarf, we can see that Moel Morda, the King of Leinster, Citric, the Hiberno-Norse King of Dublin, um, have interests in common. Neither one of them want to accept Brian's overlordship, and so they unite together to oppose him. Uh, Brian, on the other hand, has the support, obviously, of his Munster allies, but also of Moel Shechnel, uh, the King of Tara, the Inial King, who he had forced to accept his, his overlordship uh, earlier. Uh, Citric brings in allies from the wider Viking world uh, to aid him in the battle. And it, it's worth noting as well that Citric's wife at the time is in fact uh, Brian's daughter. So Citric is his son-in-law. And the other main uh, person opposed to Brian is Moel Morda, the King of Leinster, who also happens to be Brian Brew's uh, brother-in-law. So again, rather than it being a battle between the Irish and the foreigners, it's very much a battle between people who are very closely related to each other. Certainly not one which was about the Irish defeating a Scandinavian invasion. Brian Brew's descendants used both his image and the story of the battle for their own purposes. They adopted Brian's name as their surname, becoming the Ivrian, the O'Briens. Brian's great-grandson, Murkatok Ivrian, was highly influential in shaping the story of the Battle of Clontarf. Murkatok uses Brian's name as his surname, he's an O'Brien, um, and he also very much sees Brian as his model. Now, in many ways, Murkatok is a, is a more effective and more modern king than Brian, if you look at his ecclesiastical and his political policies, but he very much sets the idea of Brian as this great king. Uh, he also commissions the writing of a great saga which commemorates Brian Brew and the Battle of Clontarf, Cogagwael Regalov, which is probably written around the turn of the, the 12th century. And in a sense, it does does what many commemorations do, and I suppose it's the danger of commemoration, is it distorts the past in order to support the politics of the present. And for Murkatok, King of Ireland, uh, somebody who's really pressing these claims, the idea that he would have this great heroic ancestor who had saved Ireland from the Vikings is a very powerful political image. Now the text itself, it's a long rambling text. It combines uh, analytic accounts, accounts which are near contemporary, with a sort of a vast um, sort of narrative about how wonderful Brian is. And it presents Brian as this ideal Christian king, because there is Brian, the holy king, an elderly man at his prayer has been cut down by an apostate brosier who was presented as this, you know, evil figure. And it almost presents Brian as a Jesus figure who was martyred for Ireland on Good Friday. I mean, incidentally, we don't know if the battle was fought on Good Friday or not. The date isn't mentioned in contemporary accounts. It may well have been, but it's certainly used to very good propagandistic effects. Um, and the battle is very much a battle of good and evil. On the one hand, you've got Brian, King of Ireland, and opposed to him are the pagan Vikings who are trying to invade Ireland. Now, we know that in the time of the Battle of Contarf, the main Viking element, Citrix's army from Dublin, the Hiberno-Norse are all Christian and they're all closely related to each other and there isn't that sense like who is the foreigner like when Brian is fighting who are the foreigners really but Cogagoel Regalov replaces the complexity of the Battle of Contarf uh, you know a battle which has so many different nuances and there's so many sort of side elements and politics going on with a very simple good versus evil and it's extremely effective at what it does. In the centuries after Clontarf, the memory of the battle was kept alive and indeed reshaped in various different ways. The text commissioned by Brian Brew's great-grandson, Cugga Gael Regalov, was highly influential in this regard. Cugga inspired a popular romantic Irish prose tale, one which originated in the first half of the 17th century, Ka Clunatarov. 
Cochrane Tharav translates into the Battle of Clontarf in English. It is uh, the Irish language prose text uh, describing what happened at Clontarf. However, it is very much a story. It is not history. We're very much here in the realm of story. The characters in question, yes, they are the historical figures, Brian Borova and his son Moracha in particular, feature in the text. But it is a literary reenactment of what happened at Clontarf. Dr. Mavini Urdal. Head of Modern Irish in the UCD School of Irish, Celtic Studies, Irish Folklore and Linguistics. I would assign the actual text to what we call rom- a romantic tale. A romantic tale within Irish language circles and within Celtic schol- scholarship refers specifically to stories where you have um, motifs concerning the other world in particular, where heroes fight um, monsters, where heroes have to go into the other world by means of a lake or by means of of a cloud or a mist and fight the powers that be in the other world and then return. There are very much, there are features of that in Cochrane Atharov. In fact, I would call it a romantic tale because of that. We don't have the original of text. The earliest manuscript copies that we have come from the early 18th century. However, we know that it existed in the first half of the 17th century. The text itself owes a considerable debt to Cogal Gael Regalev, or the battle of the Gaels with the foreigners or against the foreigners. Um, Cochlanatharv is one of the most popular prose texts to have been transmitted in Irish manuscripts. In fact, I would nearly go so far as to say it is the most popular text. We have 90, 90 manuscript witnesses. That's a phenomenal amount when you look at manuscript transmission. And I think part of the reason for that is the presentation of the O'Briens as bastions, if you like, of heroism, but also um, Brian Borova as um, an observer of his own faith. For instance, he's presented as somebody who observes the um, Good Friday uh, fast. He doesn't want to spill blood. That would have resonated very much with the reading public and certainly with the scribes at the time. The text itself uh, continued to be transmitted uh, very much so in, into the second half of the 19th century. I think that would have resonated very much with um, political activists and certainly with antiquarians, people who actually were members of the institution, the Royal Irish Academy. Um, so that the text itself, while it is, um, it, it provided much entertainment for people sitting at, uh, at the fire at night, it also was a text that presented a certain image of Irishness, of language, the, the association of um, um, religion, uh, Catholicism. And it, it is this presentation of the saviour, Brian Borova, and his son, which would indeed have caught the imagination. All of that package, so to speak, would have been very, very, um, would have resonated very much with, I think, the, the, the pulse of the time. The large number of Cotlund had of manuscripts points to the popularity of the romanticised version of the Clontarf story. This popularity meant that, by the mid-19th century, Clontarf was a useful reference point for those hoping to mobilise popular opinion for political causes. The symbolic potential of Clontarf was not lost in one of Ireland's greatest political leaders, Daniel O'Connell. As part of his campaign to repeal the Act of Union, O'Connell held a series of mass meetings across Ireland throughout the year of 1843. The series was to culminate at Clontarf. O'Connell was at an advanced stage in his career in, by 1843. He was 67 years of age and he had dominated Irish politics for decades. Dr Eamon O'Flaherty of the University College Dublin School of History and Archives. His great achievement had been the winning of Catholic emancipation in the teeth of considerable opposition from the British political establishment in 1829. 
O'Connell faced a big challenge in the early 1840s because the new Prime Minister, his old adversary, Sir Robert Peel, uh, was deeply unsympathetic to demands for repeal of the Act of Union, O'Connell's great cause. O'Connellite repealers had not done very well at the 1841 general election, and so O'Connell felt that he needed to revive the old tactics he had used in the 1820s of the Catholic Association, creating a mass movement, a democratic pressure force, uh, which would be tightly organised through the Repeal Association and also financed through uh, an, a, a regular contribution that would be paid uh, by hundreds of thousands of members. O'Connell planned to demonstrate popular support by, for his movement uh, by organising meetings of the municipal corporations, large cities such as Dublin, which had been open to O'Connellite influence since they were reformed in 1840. O'Connell himself, for example, had been Lord Mayor of Dublin. Uh, but more widely, he organised a series of uh, mass meetings held at strategic places throughout the country throughout the summer of 1843. These mass meetings are monster meetings as they were known by the hostile Times newspaper and then a uh, phrase that was then taken up and applied to them generally, uh, involved the meetings of tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of people converging from all parts of the countryside to a strategic spot, often uh, a place with uh, great historic or cultural significance, places like Tara, Cashel, Malabmast, Limerick, um, and uh, they usually uh, opened with a great procession involving uh, mounted men on horseback, demonstrating, of course, the respectability of the association, the degree to which it had support from people of property. Uh, O'Connell himself often featured prominently in the initial procession. And then uh, uniformed bands, including temperance bands, uh, trades associations with their banners, uh, very colourful and uh, highly disciplined, uh, almost military formation of people heading towards uh, the appointed place. And then O'Connell's speech was the centre point of the entire meeting. Of course, many of the people present couldn't have heard his speech, uh, but they were reported extensively in the newspapers. And they always focused on the theme of repeal. But in addition, uh, they drew attention to the historical resonance of the place where people were assembled. Uh, so O'Connell was tapping into historical memory, uh, including the memories associated with the particular place where the meeting was taking place. Tara, which is its association with the High Kings of Ireland, Cashel, the Kings of Munster, uh, Malak Mast with its 16th century massacre, and even places which were associated with uh, the still recent horrors of the 1798 rebellion. The Clontarf meeting was due to take place on the 8th of October. It was to be the culmination of the series, intended to deliver an overwhelming demand for appeal. Clontarf was to follow the pattern of the earlier meetings but on an even grander scale. The place where O'Connell intended as the site of the meeting was called Conquer Hill, uh, which is now a street, a residential street in the suburb of Clontarf. We're here in uh, St Anne's Park in Rahini nearby, which gives us some sense of uh, what the open space of Conquer Hill might have looked like. O'Connell had overtly referred to the symbolism of the Battle of Clontarf in the run-up to the meeting. Uh, he proposed to have it at Conquer Hill on the site of a mound, which he said was a mound erected over the bodies of the fallen Viking soldiers. Um, some had said that it was a mound erected over the body of the fallen Irish soldiers at Clontarf. But nevertheless, he made explicit the connections between the mass meeting at Clontarf and the battle. O'Connell's image of the Battle of Clontarf 
was very much drawn from the uh, historiography of nationalist Ireland, which was just beginning to emerge in the 1830s and 1840s, and some of which was being created by uh, his allies uh, in the repeal movement, particularly the young generation, later known as Young Ireland, associated with the newspaper The Nation uh, and with writers like Thomas Davis. These were producing an inspirational version of Irish history, uh, not an academic version of Irish history, a version of Irish history which was supposed to inspire national loyalties and uh, national feelings. O'Connell once described himself as Old Ireland in comparison to the Young Ireland uh, movement of Davis and his contemporaries, uh, but they were at one in their belief that uh, Irish history was uh, the history of the emergence of the Irish nation. And the Battle of Clontarf, of course, was sort of a landmark event in the emergence of this nation. It wasn't interpreted in academic terms at all. It was interpreted in national terms. The atmosphere of growing expectation around the mass meetings alarmed Irish Conservatives. The large-scale plans for the Clontarf meeting caused the government of Robert Peel to act. Peel had initially been very dismissive of the repeal movement. He uh, didn't feel that he had to respond to it very seriously. He didn't take it seriously. But by May of 1843, he was beginning to take it seriously and argued in the House of Commons on one occasion that he would prefer to see a civil war than the dismemberment of the empire. The scale of the meetings in July and August, and indeed the scale of the intended meeting in Clontarf, did alarm Irish Conservatives to the extent that it was decided to take action against the meeting. This was also, of course, inspired by um, the fact that military language was used in at least one of the, of the um, advertisements uh, calling the meeting at Clontarf uh, in early October talking about our repeal cavalry. Uh, and this ultimately swung uh, government opinion decisively in favour of taking a military response, proclaiming the meeting and uh, landing troops, additional troops in Dublin to be prepared for any violence in the event of an attempt to hold an illegal meeting at Clontarf. O'Connell's response to the government ban, the government proclamation banning the meeting, showed his complete control over the repeal movement. The ban itself, the proclamation, wasn't issued by the Lord Lieutenant until quite late in the day on the eve of the meeting, uh, after dark on the, the evening of the 7th of October. Immediately O'Connell decided that he was going to comply with the ban. He mobilised all the resources of uh, the Repeal Association to send out uh, men on horseback to the roads around Clontarf, turning away crowds of people who had already begun to assemble uh, go, and were moving towards the site getting the printing presses going, printing uh, handbills and posters, advertising the fact that the meeting had been called off. And this was so successful uh, that by the morning of the 8th of October, when the meeting was due to take place, the only people present on the site at Clontarf were the military. O'Connell's decision to comply with the ban and call off the Clontarf meeting was consistent with his rejection of violence. However, the decision alienated many of his supporters who felt that the government's inflexibility in banning the meeting demanded a violent response. Gavin Duffy, in his memoir Young Ireland, uh, talks about uh, the moment momentum that had been built up 
during the repeal year of 1843. And so this is almost like a, um, a tidal wave of support that had been built up and then was allowed to simply break and dissipate because of O'Connell's failure to act in 1843, uh, because of O'Connell's capitulation, as he saw it, to the government. Now, of course, what O'Connell saw were warships in the bay, regiments of soldiers on the field, um, guns in the pigeon house trained on the site, and the prospect of a, a terrible massacre. What Gavin Duffy and the younger generation saw was uh, the mobilisation of a population which could possibly be um, um, used to enforce concessions, to demand concessions from the British um, at the point of a gun, if necessary. Um, but this, of course, was uh, contrary to the non-violent doctrine that O'Connell had been advocating since the 1820s. This doctrine now began to seem somewhat old-fashioned and out of date to the young Irelanders. In the period after Clontarf, we do see the emergence of an Irish nationalist historiography, of uh, an account of a glorious Irish past, a search for, I suppose, military heroes and uh, heroism in the past. Davis and his successors found it in various sources. They found it, for example, in the military legends of the, and history of the wild geese, the Irish regiments who had fought in the continent in the, in the uh, 18th century. They also found it in the ancient past, in the record of the, the pre-Norman past, and particularly, of course, in the, in the study of figures such as Brian Boru and uh, the Battle of Clontarf. So as the Gaelic revival gathered momentum in the late 19th century and became associated with the celebration of everything that was distinctively national, then, of course, aspects of Irish history of the early Norman period uh, came to be given great prominence. By the beginning of the 20th century, therefore, the idea of 1014 as a successful battle in a centuries-long struggle for Irish independence had become extremely attractive to Irish nationalists. Because of highly significant political and military developments in Britain and Ireland, awareness of Brian Brew and Clontarf was to reach something of a high point as the ninth centenary of the battle approached in April 1914. The political and military leaders of 1914 in Ireland very much looked to the Battle of Clontarf and understood its significance on the contemporary. Dr Conor Mulva of the University College Dublin School of History and Archives. For the founders of the Irish Volunteers, Owen McNeill, Thomas McDonough, the Battle of Clontarf began to signify the greatest single event in Irish history where a unified Irish army, a unified Irish military force stood against the foreigner as they perceived it. While the ninth centenary of the Battle of Clontarf was looming large in public memory and in academic circles, in the political sphere, 1914 saw a rapid escalation of events. Ireland stood not only on the verge of crisis, but also on the verge of independence. After four years of political endeavour, the Home Rule project looked like it was finally coming to fruition. A Home Rule bill had been introduced in 1912, and by 1914, it was only months away from passing on to the statute book. In Ulster, the opposition to Home Rule simply wasn't feasible through ordinary constitutional means. As such, Ulster Unionists rapidly moved into a phase of extra-parliamentary opposition, beginning with the inauguration of the Ulster Volunteers, the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant in September of 1912, and by 1913 and into 1914, the situation in Ireland was deteriorating rapidly. In March, officers of the Curra mooted that they wouldn't carry out any orders to impose Home Rule on Ulster. Subsequent to this event, at Larne in April of 1914, the Ulster Volunteers landed a large consignment of arms and ammunition. 
This brought about a change in the Irish situation. Essentially, although guns had been filtering into the country for a period before this, in April of 1914, the gun was introduced at large to Irish politics once more. In this period, history and former precedents of Irish nationhood and Irish sovereignty became all the more relevant to public debate. So much like Daniel O'Connell in 1843 saw Clontarf as a moment in in the ancient and distant past that had contemporary significance and portent, the same thing occurred in 1914. Clontarf signified much of what was occurring in the contemporary. In November of 1913, the Irish Volunteers had been inaugurated as a movement within Nationalist Ireland to oppose the opposition of Ulster. The Irish Volunteers represented for the first time a united army on the island of Ireland led by Irishmen. Brian Baru for Owen McNeill, Thomas McDonough and their contemporaries was very much a symbol of a united Ireland, a symbol of an assertive Ireland and a symbol of an Ireland that had its sovereignty. In 1914 they looked for the emulation and the replication of these events at Clontarf in the contemporary. On the 7th of February 1914, a new paper was inaugurated in Dublin. The Irish Volunteer was the official organ and the official newspaper of the Irish Volunteer movement. In its very first issue, one of the leading articles was written by Sir Roger Casement. In that article, Casement looked to the Battle of Clontarf as one of the significant events on the horizon and on the calendar of the Irish Volunteers in the year of 1914. He saw the ninth centenary of the Battle of Clontarf as a key opportunity for the Irish Volunteers. It allowed them to represent themselves as forming part of an Irish martial lineage going right the way back through 1798 to the ancient and medieval Irish past. He also saw it as a battle where Ireland was united against the foreigner. Obviously this wasn't the reality of Clontarf. However, for Casement, this was very much the Gael versus the Gaul. He wanted to use Clontarf as an opportunity for Irishmen of all creeds and all political viewpoints to come together on the shores of Clontarf, on the sands as he saw it, to commemorate the battle in unison. In spite of Roger Casement's call to volunteers to assemble, the reality of Clontarf in April of 1914 echoed Daniel O'Connell in 1843 more than Brian Baru in 1014. As the ninth centenary approached, it rapidly appeared that Casement's initial call of the 7th of February was not going to be honoured. The volunteers were manifestly unprepared. In a very interesting article in the Irish Volunteer on the 4th of April 1914, a correspondent going under the pseudonym of Conan Whale looked to the Battle of Clontarf and said that the volunteers simply weren't ready. Although there were small commemorations in Fermoy and other parts of Ireland, at Clontarf nothing happened. Contemporary developments stole the limelight when, on the 24th and the 25th of April, Ulster volunteers landed arms at Larne and other ports along the coast. This very much usurped any historical commemorations that were planned for April of 1914. On the 26th of July 1914, three months after the Ulster volunteers had landed arms, the Irish volunteers successfully landed rifles and ammunition at Hoth. In open daylight, and an open opposition to the prohibition on the importation of arms. Whereas in Ulster in April of 1914, arms were landed on a grand scale and very much in, a, in an event that fully armed the Ulster volunteers in a night. At Hoth, this was an event that was carried out in daylight and largely for spectacle rather than an effective arming of the force. Although the Irish volunteers numbered over 100,000 strong at this point, they landed only a small consignment of arms. 
After landing the arms at Hoth, the Irish volunteers, about 800 in total, assembled at Hoth and marched back into Dublin city. At the very base of the Hoth Road, members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, backed up by the King's Own Scottish Borderers, a British military unit, were blocking the road. Volunteer cycle scouts, cycling ahead of the main body of, of Irish volunteers, noticed this and reported back to the, the Irish volunteer commanders that the road was blocked and that it, an attempt at seizing their arms was contemplated. At this, the Irish volunteers decided to wheel to their right and move down Charlemont Road to try and get to Malahide Road and circumvent the military picket. The police and the military quickly realised what was going on. Leaving a skeleton force to block the Hoth Road, they bolted down the street on which we're currently standing. Moving through Merino Crescent, the police and military re-blocked the Malahide Road and at that point a standoff occurred. The Irish volunteers were freshly armed, however they didn't have any ammunition for their rifles. And this caused problems. The Irish volunteers simply turned their rifles around to use them as clubs. And what developed was, as one contemporary recounted, a battle of helmet and club against club and bayonet. At least three volunteers, including the senior volunteer commander Michael Judge, was bayoneted. Not fatally, but still the Battle of Clontarf of 1914 drew its own casualties. One member of the body, Daryl Figgis, approached the police and argued that the Irish volunteers had a right to parade with arms, as the exact same thing had occurred in Belfast the week beforehand. While the police and military were distracted in this discussion with Daryl Figgis, a rearguard of the Hoth volunteers was formed up on the road to block the military from progressing and trying to disarm further volunteers. At the same time, the volunteers were ordered to rapidly disperse from the area and in twos and threes the volunteers simply ran away from the conflicts and the confrontation on the Malahide Road. Only 20 rifles were lost in the affray between the military and police and the volunteers on the other side. And as the military unit, the King's Own Scottish Borderers, that had participated in Clontarf, marched back through the city, they were harassed and assaulted by just members of the Dublin public. This resulted in an incident on Bachelor's Walk in which four unarmed civilians, unassociated with the Irish volunteers, were killed by British military forces through bayoneting and through shooting. These two events combined means that Ireland was on a knife edge after the events of 26 July 1914. For some participants, Clontarf in July 1914 was particularly significant. The Irish volunteer commander and future proclamation signatory Thomas McDonough gave an account of Clontarf in the Irish Review. Ireland has now the strength to enforce her choice of destiny. At Clontarf in 1914, as at Clontarf in 1014, has been won a national victory. For the Irish volunteers now, discipline, vigilance, confidence. Without scripting or planning the event, the Irish volunteers had been handed a foundation narrative of their own, of intense import, in 1914. They saw clear parallels between their actions in July and what had occurred in 1014. Two years later, writing the Irish Volunteer in its very last issue before the 1916 Rising, McDonough wrote to his readers that This Easter is for the Irish Volunteers. We should make it impressive. And it is not only Easter, it is the anniversary of Clontarf, April 23rd. Commemoration always speaks more about the contemporary than it does about the historical past or the event that is being commemorated. Clontarf wasn't remembered in either 1843 or 1914 simply because it was an important event in Irish history. The importance was that it had incredible contemporary significance as a symbol of resistance, as a symbol of assertiveness and as a symbol of 
Irish people coming together to fight off what was seen and what was distorted as a foreign invader. The facts of Clontarf of 1014 didn't matter to those who brought up Clontarf. It was a romanticised Clontarf. It was a Clontarf that saw much more to do with the contemporary events than with any historical fact behind them. Clontarf is an incredibly important case study in memory and commemoration in Ireland. By assessing Clontarf across different chronological episodes, we can see how memory evolves and how powerful distortions of the past can become.